We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. During our worship service, before the sermon, two passages were read from the Bible. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 53, and Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. There's this uh, scene in Old Yeller where Arliss, who's about six years old, he asks his older brother Travis, how far off is heaven? And Travis says, oh, I don't know, a fur piece, I guess. And Arliss said, well, is heaven as far off as Papa went? Now, they lived in Texas, and Travis says, oh, it's a heap further than that. So Arliss says, where did Papa go? And Travis said, to Kansas. Now, this image of heaven as a far-off place, it's everywhere in our culture, from movies to good old gospel music. One of the most recorded gospel music songs in history is I'll Fly Away. Some bright morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. To that home on God's celestial shore, I'll fly away. I'll fly away, O oh glory, when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Then there's the last stanza of How Great Thou Art, another very popular gospel song. It begins this way, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home. What joy shall fill my heart. And it's not just the 19th and 20th century Christian music. Los Lonely Boys made it big with their hit, How Far Is Heaven? I mean, this is what got them on the national scene. And and John Lennon's, one of his most enduring songs, Imagine, the first stanza is built around this idea of heaven being a far-off place. Now, this picture of heaven as really far away, it's so deeply rooted in the whole tradition of Western civilization that when we hear, we people from the Western civilization, when we hear stories like this about Christ floating up into a cloud, then it's obvious to us that's what's going on. He's flying off to some place past Pluto, which we now know is no longer a planet, right? To, to a location called heaven. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? This is, if you have a Bible, um, there's one in the pew in front of you if you want to look or you can just listen. If you have a Bible in Acts chapter 1, this is what Alan read to us. In Acts chapter 1 verse 9 it says, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, And a cloud took him out of their sight. But the Bible is much more sophisticated than we give it credit for. For the Jewish people, the people who wrote the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of our Bible, and for the Christians of the New Testament, when it comes to heaven and earth, they were not talking about geography. Now that's really important for us to understand. For the people who wrote this part of the Bible, for them, when they were talking about heaven and earth, they're not dealing with geography. For them, heaven and earth are not two different locations in the universe. Earth is here and heaven is way out there somewhere. 
some place that I fly to when I die. According to the culture that produced the scriptures, heaven and earth, now get this, it takes some thinking, heaven and earth are two different dimensions, not locations. They are two dimensions of the same reality. Heaven is God's dimension. Earth is our dimension. Part of the confusion is because the biblical writers use the word heaven or heavens just like we do. Sometimes they mean by it the heavens, the sky, the stuff that's up there. And other times they mean by it the the dimension you go into when you die, hopefully. And it's the same with the word earth. Sometimes it means the soil under our feet. But other times when it's used in the Bible, it means our dimension of reality. Now, this is what's going on in, a, in one of the Psalms, Psalm 115, when it says, The heavens are the Lord's and the earth is given to humans. Now, I know this is hard. A change of perspective is always difficult. For some people, it helps to think of heaven and earth like the weight of an object and the stuff it's made of. Two aspects of the exact same reality. In the Bible, heaven and earth are overlapping, interlocking dimensions of the same reality. So the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven, if you've bought into the Western civilization view, then that means every time I go to pray, our Father is in heaven, I better shout because he's a long way out there past Pluto, and I really hope he can hear me. But to the people who produced the scriptures and to Jesus who gave us that prayer, to him it meant the exact opposite. The exact opposite. It meant to my Father who is always near, but right now, I can't see you. Now that's a great way to start every prayer. Every morning when I wake up, that's the first thing I pray. My Father who is near to me right now, even though I can't see you today, you are here. You're in heaven. You're near. See, that's fundamentally different. Now once we catch a glimpse of what's going on in the Bible, with heaven and earth, now we're ready to scratch the surface of the ascension. Let's look at three things tonight the ascension means, and then let's talk about three ways the ascension matters. First of all, the ascension means this idea that Jesus floated up and was enveloped in a cloud. The ascension means Jesus is Lord. The ascension is his enthronement. Heaven, according to the culture that produced the Bible, is the kind of control room for earth. It's the CEO office. It's the place from which earth is run, or it's supposed to be. That's why we're told to pray that that would become a reality. The ascension is Jesus' triumphant arrival at the end of a long and painful journey. He is the only ruler and king of all the cosmos. The ascension meant to the people who saw it, he's the CEO. He's the boss. Now, a second meaning of the ascension is this. 
It means that Jesus has a body right now. Jesus has a body. It's not like after his work was done, he just slipped off his skin suit and got back to being the son of God without the drag of human nature. It's quite mind-boggling to consider that Jesus is still in skin. He is still bearing our humanity. But that is precisely the point of the ascension. He didn't just dissolve into some spiritual realm. He's truly human. He's an embodied human, and he's not here in our dimension. And that's the third thing the ascension means. It means that Jesus is absent. He's absent from our dimension. If we take seriously the fact that the flesh and blood Jesus ascended to the Father, then we have to realize that in a quite profound way, He's not here anymore. That's the point of the ascension. For 40 days, Jesus had been visiting with His disciples and then disappearing, but now something different occurred. But remember... We're talking about heaven and earth, two dimensions of the same reality, overlapping and interlocking. So his absence is not geographical. It's not about distance. See, when I said Jesus' absence, some of you kind of short-circuited, and you're like, wait a minute, we shouldn't be saying this kind of thing in a Christian church. Of course we shouldn't say that if we mean by heaven someplace out past Pluto. Now, we're in a similar position to Israel. In the second book of the Bible, Exodus, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses, their leader, has gone to the top of the mountain to meet with God. And the mountain, for those of you who've read this part, was engulfed in what? A cloud. In the Bible, the cloud is the divine presence. So what does it mean in Acts 1 when Jesus ascended into a cloud? It's the same thing that happened at the Mount of Transfiguration. It was God himself being there. So Moses goes up to the top of the mountain to the presence of God into this impenetrable cloud. And the Israelites are at the bottom of the mountain and they can't see God. And it drives them crazy. And they long for their leader, Moses. And it's the same for us, isn't it? Our Savior has ascended to the presence of the Father into God's dimension into the dimension of reality that's kind of like the UV rays. It's on the extreme end of the spectrum that we can't see with the naked eye, right? He's hidden from our eyes. We can't see him. There are rumors of his glory. But he's nowhere to be seen except by the eye of faith. And that's tough. I mean, let's be honest. It sure would be easy. If he was sitting here, flesh and blood. But his ascension has produced a time of testing for us, of persevering. And we, like the disciples, are standing there with mouths open. And we're being told to wait. And so we proclaim this throughout our worship service tonight. After the sermon, we're going to all say together the Apostles' Creed. And we're going to confess 
He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and He will come again. And we're in between those two sentences. He's ascended and He's coming again and we're waiting. And we say it during communion when we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Every time we gather for worship, we are proclaiming His absence and we are looking for His return. In fact, that's how the Bible ends. The last page of the Bible, the last paragraph of the Bible, the penultimate verse, the very next to last verse of the Bible, Jesus says, surely I'm coming again. And the church responds with a shout, amen, come Lord Jesus. That's the cry of our heart. We're tired of waiting. Come back. This is hard when you're gone. It's hard to not see. Come back. That's it. That's what it means. But tomorrow's Monday. So what does it matter? What does it matter for a culture that's drowning in a sea of busyness? Well, the ascension matters. Because it matters for how we treat each other. Look, the ascension is a foreshadow of what will happen at the end of the age. It it gives us a glimpse into the destination of all things. Jesus, when he ascended, he held on to created matter. He held his physical body as he went to the dimension of God. He held in himself a pledge the renewal of the rest of created matter. So right now, Jesus is in heaven ruling the whole world. But one day he will return to earth, to this dimension, and he will complete his rule. And when he does, heaven and earth will be fully united, completely integrated. That's where the Bible ends. Heaven coming to earth. Just like right now in the person of Jesus, heaven and earth are together, fully integrated, completely united. So the Christian vision of redemption is redemption of this world, not redemption from this world. When the New Testament speaks about God's kingdom, it never, ever, ever refers to heaven as purely spiritual. It always refers to God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And God always intended for his highest creation, humans, to rule over his earth, to rule it with wisdom and with gentleness, to bring order to civilization, to cultivate beauty, And in the ascended human Jesus, that goal was realized. Here's the punchline. If the ascension vindicates Jesus, if it says, Rome, you thought you won, but you're wrong. If it it vindicates who Jesus is, it also vindicates the way Jesus walked. 
That is why he told us in his most famous sermon, the meek shall inherit heaven? No. The earth. Meekness. Strength restrained. That's the way of Jesus. And that is the way of life God vindicated in ascending Jesus to the throne. It's what got him crucified and it's what got him vindicated. And those who follow that way will also inherit this earth. Now so much of our life is concerned with power. Who's in power? Who's out of power? Who has the power to do this? Who has the power to do that? We jostle for power. We all imagine if I had a little more power in this situation, then I could set things right. And we are in an age that is dying for power. But in fact, our age is dying of power. Marriages become power games and both partners end up losing to say nothing of what happens to children. Nations grab for power and freedom, and as soon as they get it, they fragment into power-hungry factions. And over against the love of power, right at the heart of the Christian vision of reality, stands this ridiculous paradox. True power is found in the apparent failure and the shameful death of a young Jew at the hands of a ruthless empire. The ascension is the divine affirmation of the power of humility. It is the divine affirmation of love over against the love of power. It's the divine affirmation of the future of this earth inherited by those who lay down their power, hold back their strength, And follow their ascended Lord, forswearing all manipulation and domination, and instead give themselves over to risky acts of meekness and humility. So tomorrow's Monday. And in our culture that has been seduced by the lure of power, the ascension challenges us with a world that will be renewed and it will last eternally and the meek they'll inherit it now that sits like a bomb in over the mountain communities that is revolutionary you see the ascension matters for how I live my life and how you live your life at work and how you navigate your family and relationships with friends and how you treat your enemies. The meek will inherit the earth. Now another way the ascension matters is when it comes to the work of the church. I hope you're seeing that the ascension leads us to a vision of the new creation where God is God and humanity is authentically human and the world is a flourishing, peaceful, 
fruitful place. But when we reduce Christianity to following Jesus into heaven and staying there forever, we end up with some kind of otherworldly religion that sits at the heart of John Lennon's critique. It's that kind of religion that caused him to say, imagine there's none of that kind of place. Imagine there's no heaven like that. He's right. And we as a church today need to do exactly what he said. We need to imagine that heaven doesn't exist. Instead, the heaven the Bible holds up. We need to imagine that exists. The ascension points to the fact that God has no plans to abandon his good creation. Unfortunately, it's a perennial temptation of the church to withdraw from this fallen, violent, broken world. Let all things new, let us, let this church never withdraw. Let us never shrink back from this material world with the excuse that we're waiting for his return. The calling of the church is not to escape this world, but to participate in its transformation. Now, like we're seeing in the ascension, salvation is not purely spiritual. And when we assume that the main object of the game is to forget earth and to concentrate on heaven and to get people ready for some distant destination out past Pluto, then for all effective purposes, we will stop worrying about what goes on on this earth. On the other hand, if we really believe that all things will be made new, that all creation will be renewed, if we really do believe that deep in our guts, then we are committing ourselves to a life of responsible engagement with this world, unrelenting devotion to the world for the sake of the world. That is why we can go and waste time caring for the lost and the least. That is why we can waste our time caring for creation, seeking to restore it and not to destroy the earth. Now, I've said a couple of times that tomorrow's Monday, and ascension has massive implications for how we act in this world and in this church. Let me finish by saying, Tomorrow may be Monday, but this is Sunday. And the ascension has something serious to say about what we are doing right now, here, tonight. You see, the ascension helps us see a little more clearly into the mystery of worship. If you have a Bible... Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2. Now, it's a few pages to the right. If you need to use your table of contents, that's fine. If you want to just listen again, there's no, no harm in that. Hebrews chapter 2. Look with me at verse 10. For it was fitting 
that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. Now listen to this. That is why he, that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. To call you and me brothers and sisters. Saying, present tense. Not past tense, not said. But Jesus is saying, I will tell of your name, talking about God, to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, this is Jesus talking, I and the children God has given me. Now what we see here is that the union with Christ of Christ with his people is most fully realized when we worship. We find Jesus in this passage praising the Father in the midst of a worshiping congregation. A church assembled for the purpose of worship. In the midst of that, we find Jesus praising the Father. And he says to the Father, in the midst of a worshiping congregation, get the, it, it's incredible, he says, here I am. Here I am. Here, here am I, God, and here are the children you've given me. That's the end of verse 13. Can you see it? It transforms our understanding of worship. It fills us with layers of imagination as we visualize the dimension of reality here now that we can't see but it's here all around us look I, I don't fully understand this there's a verse in Ephesians that helps me a little it, it, Ephesians 2.6 you don't have to turn there it says this God raised us up you and me, with Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Remember how I said Jesus is absent from the earth, but his absence is not one of geography? Part of what the Holy Spirit does when we gather for worship takes us into the heavenly places. When we worship as a congregation, the Holy Spirit gives us access to the physical, ascended Christ. He brings us into God's presence. He lifts us up spiritually in our worship to the throne room of God where Jesus serves as our advocate and our worship leader. So as we're worshiping tonight... We can visualize Jesus standing right in the midst of us. Right in the midst of this room. And his arms are outstretched. And he is offering us to his father. And even as he offers his own praises to them, He's saying, Father, here I am. And I'm pronouncing your name to them. And I'm telling their names to you. By the power of the Holy Spirit. 
We are lifted into Christ. And he offers us up. He offers us to the Father. He says, Father, here I am. And the family that you've given me. And within the gathered church, I lead your praises, Father. In the midst of every sanctuary, Jesus is leading the praise. From the tiniest church in the remotest village of Kenya to the grandest cathedral of Europe to the largest worship center in Birmingham, Jesus is worshiping his Father. And he's bringing his brothers and sisters into the presence of God. And all of that is going on in the midst of this room tonight. Even on those evenings when we sit here like bumps on a log, sleepy and distracted and bored and confused and thinking about dinner, there's another dimension that just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not going on. It is going on. And it is surpassing and transcending all of this. And it is taking all of us up, sleepy or not, into a dimension that is more real than the air we breathe. And when Robert called us to worship tonight, it was the Holy Spirit giving us access to the physical ascended Christ. And it was really Christ standing in the center of this room with his arms outstretched, declaring to us the name of God and declaring our names to the Father. That's where Luke ends his account of the ascension. Verse 50 of chapter 24. Then he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them. And he was carried into heaven. And get this. And they worshipped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple blessing God. You see, when we take the ascension seriously, then the gathered church in corporate worship becomes massively important. Because it is precisely by that action that we are given access to the physically ascended Christ. And the bottom line is this. We here on earth, waiting, longing, struggling with all of our doubts and skepticisms and cynicism. Our leader has disappeared. And we can know, and we can enjoy, and we can be energized by the life of heaven now on earth through our corporate worship. Ah, we've only scratched the surface of the ascension. Look, any aspect of Jesus' life is worth a lifetime of contemplation. There is such a wondrous depth to the face of Christ. 
And tonight we come face to face with the claiming, demanding pressure of the ascension with all of its claims and all of its demands for the way we treat each other and the way our church treats this world and the way we worship. It's a mystery. But there's something going on here. Let's pray.